Good morning. It's great to see all of you here today. I want to begin this last message in a Revenant series with some questions. Um, Perhaps one of these will apply to you. Have you ever felt in your life that if you were in a different position, maybe a different station, a different status, whatever be the case, that you could accomplish something more significant? Have you ever felt that way? You're not going to, you have some of you saying yes. If you had a real honest moment, and I was having a conversation with you about, you know, your work uh, environment, would you admit to me, you know what, I don't really think about work much. I just do what they tell me because I've kind of given up on the place. And so I just go there, put my time in, and, and go home. Are you a student, whether it be high school, college, and do you often find yourself thinking, I don't have a lot of influence at this moment in my life because after all, I am just a student. Yeah, nobody really is going to listen to me. Uh, anyway, perhaps you're a stay-at-home parent and you feel like I have a lot of influence with my children, but honestly, I don't feel like I have influence with anybody else. Uh, why would they listen to me? Do you ever find yourself thinking that way if that be your, your state uh, of affairs? Are you middle management at some company? God help you. Because <laughs> you have those above you telling you what to do and those below you expecting you to do some things and you're stuck in the middle. And oftentimes it's a very precarious place to be in. Do you find yourself kind of losing hope thinking, who am I, what am I going to do here? I just have to support these policies and try to help these people and I can't win with either uh, situation. Perhaps you're in a higher leadership level in, in work or, or a school situation, whatever be the case, and um, people think you should be able to change things, and you realize, I really can't. Maybe you're the boss, maybe the owner, and you know some things nobody else knows. And they are very simplistic in their thinking that you can just go in there and do whatever you want to do, and you know I can't do that. Do any of these situations describe you at all? Do they tickle your, your uh, fancy uh, a little bit? Because I think what happens to us is that sometimes we miss opportunities. We miss prime divine moments that God lays our direction because we're busy rationalizing in our minds why we can't be used of God, why we can't be an influencer why we're not the right person, the right name, the right situation, the right position, whatever be the case, where we think God could use me. Our big thought in this final message of the Remnant series is, is this this morning. We are to be people who seize the moment God gives us. We need to understand. We just need to understand that for such a time as this, God has placed us in our stations in life. Amen? 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 Thank you. In this last uh, Remnant series message, we're going to go into the question deeply of, of how, do, how do God's people respond when they find themselves in the margin of culture, when they find themselves in various places in culture, how, how, how should God's people respond? You know, God has moments for us to seize that are really transcendent over our station of life. 
We, we, listen, listen, hear this. We cannot let the stories of our lives be limited by our perception that we have no influence. Did you hear what I just said? We cannot let the stories of our lives be limited by the perception that we have no influence. And definitely we cannot let the stories of our lives be limited by our small view of God. God works irregardless of the station of your life. And what we're going to do this morning is take a look at a group of people in the Bible who faced times. They were in those such a time as this kind of moments. And we see several responses in the story I'm going to read to you this morning that are informative because they transcend the story we're going to read and apply to the times we find ourselves in this morning. This study we're looking at this morning could almost be considered a case study. We're going to look at several different characters of Esther, okay? And I'm just going to look at them with you in the order they're presented in the story, okay? There is no one, two, three, four points again this morning. Are you okay with that? I kind of just muse through this, and there's some reflective thoughts that I just want to share with you today, but I'm just going simply by the story, by the character presentation order, and, and I'm going to pull out some, how did they respond? What does this mean to us as the people of God in our times? Um, so we're going to look at understanding the times. We're going to use the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, there are four main characters that illuminate various responses uh, to the times. And I think the way that they respond here transcends just their situation and has application to us and a message for us uh, this morning. Um, I, I, I just have to say this. Esther is the hero of the story. Amen? Amen? Okay, that's why the book is named Esther. She's the hero of the story. But get this. This girl was marginalized, like few of us have experienced she was subjected to a foreign group of people. She was a refugee. She found herself in the margins of that culture. Not only that, being a woman at that time put you in a subcategory also. So she's a refugee. She's Jewish. She's a woman. She understood marginalization in her life. But God used this girl from the margin of that culture to save his Jewish people from annihilation. So from the margins, she definitely, definitely influenced back to the center of culture. The book of Esther in the Old Testament is part of a collection of books called the Megaloth. Um, these are just scrolls of the Old Testament that were read publicly at certain Jewish feasts. So these books included the uh, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Now Esther was read at the Feast of Purim, and, and, and what it was about that, that was an annual feast in, in, in Jewish tradition that would remember the deliverance of the Jews that God brought about through Esther. So this morning we're going to look at the four main characters of the book of Esther, and, and we're going to look at how they reacted to the times they found themselves in, and we're going to ask ourselves, what does this mean to us? What does this mean to us? Here's part of the reason we're doing this and why it's profitable um, Sometimes people ask me, why do we look at the Old Testament? Isn't it kind of gone? Shouldn't we just be New Testament people and all that kind of stuff? But 
All Scripture is given to us for understanding and for instruction. In fact, we're told that in the New Testament. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, we're told this. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we're going to look at Esther this morning because it's God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, instruction, and correcting and training in righteousness so that you and I can be what? Thoroughly equipped for every good work that God calls us to do. So, here we go. First character that we meet in the story of Esther is the most powerful person at that time, humanly speaking. Um, He's one of the main characters of the book of Esther. His name is Xerxes. Xerxes. And the book of Esther begins by introducing this ruler in all of his narcissistic glory. Amen? All of his narcissistic glory. This guy has got no image problem. He is the man, and he lets everybody know it. Let's uh, begin by reading about Xerxes. I'm going to read from Esther chapter 1. Listen to what is said about him. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces that uh, were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. He has no image, did you? Amen? He's vain. He's vain. He's full of vain glory. He's narcissistic. He's an egomaniac. All right? You getting who this guy is? When these days were over, not enough party yet, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel Susa. Jumping down to verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, you can read that list, to bring before him Queen Vasky, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Here, my little trophy wife, he, come on out here in my drunken stupor. I want to display you to everybody. Okay, you getting what's going on here? Was that too straightforward? But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vasky refused to come. The king became furious and burned with anger. So you got Xerxes introduced to us. He's the king of Persia. He's a ruler over a massive piece of real estate. In fact, he's probably ruler all, over all of known civilization at that time. And he has a 180-day-long thing going on where he is just showing off. Partly he was trying to build some allegiance here with the powerful people of his time. Um, He was experiencing at this moment some rebellion from the Egyptians, and there was an uprising going on in in Babylon, and he was about to try to do a conquest in Greece. So what he was doing was try to uh, preserve his position and increase his influence here. Um, uh, You know, when you're an important person, you're always trying to make more. You're trying to preserve what you have. You're trying to increase it to a greater level. That tends to be the case. One of the big takeaways we can get from the book of Esther is this. Listen, this guy is crazy. Are you getting this? He's an egomaniac. He's 
super narcissistic. One of the takeaways that we can get from the book of Esther is that God can even touch such a person's heart. Because Esther got to his heart and got him to change his mind. As we'll see later on in the story, as, as, as they were about to try to annihilate all the Jews. So Xerxes is an example of preserving and increasing what makes you feel important. Okay? That's what we see. That's how he responded to the times he found himself in, right? Amen? Would you agree with me? He's in these times. What's he about? I want to preserve what I have. I want to increase it to more. That's how Xerxes responded to his times. People who are in control and who are a bit narcissistic and who are a bit ego-oriented to themselves try to preserve and increase their control. Now let's reflect on that. What does that mean to you and me as a follower of God? See, God calls you and I to steward. We'd have a steward mentality, not a preserve and increase mentality. Are you hearing that? We're to have a steward mentality versus a preserve and increase mentality. You know why? We live a different reality. Amen? We are not about the things of this world. I, we don't need to panic when we're not in charge, when we don't seem like we have a lot of control, because you know what? God's in control. Amen? We're, we don't own anything. We don't have to try to increase. We don't have to try to preserve because we don't own a blasted thing. Every good gift comes down from our Father in heaven. We have to really believe that. Otherwise, when we run into times we're running into right now where we maybe feel marginalized, uh, 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 you know, and, and feeling pushed to the side a little bit, uh, we might be about trying to preserve and increase. And we might succumb to this bad approach. One person said you should be more concerned about where your wealth is going instead of whether it's growing or not. Where is it going? Listen, I want you to hear this. You are of a different tribe if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You are of a different tribe if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Xerxes now had an image problem, didn't he? He lost face because of Asti. She disobeyed him publicly. Woo! So he spoke with the wise men of his time. What do I do? She's not cooperating. They all recommended that he uh, basically remove her as queen. Here's the reasoning that they gave. If you allow her to do this, then all of our wives will do that to us. <laughs> they'll begin to disrespect us and not listen to us and we won't be in control anymore. You know, one thing about trying to be in control, and this is what we see in King uh, this Xerxes, is that really when you think you're in control, what you're trying to control usually controls you. And so he banishes Vasti from his presence forever and he says her royal position will be given to somebody else. I'm going to legislate respect in our kingdom. Women, you will respect your husbands. How do you think that works out? <laughs> Some of you gals are smiling at least, you know. That's not a very good approach. You know what we see here in this situation is we see a fleshing out of the curse pronounced in Genesis 3. 
because of sin, God said that husbands would treat their wives with harshness. In other words, they would treat them as property, they'd rule over them. We see that on a kingdom scale here, don't we? Going on. So now Xerxes has to find himself a new wife. And into the story comes our second main character. I love him because I just like his name, Mordecai. Mordecai is a cool name. Mordecai comes onto the scene now, and he's going to be an important player in the story of Esther in the Old Testament. Let me read about him in Esther 2, verses 5 through 7. Now there was in the citadel Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jar, the son of uh, Simei, the, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, um, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who is also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here's the thing we're going to see about Mordecai. He is an example of pouring your life into another person. His cousin, Hadassah, Esther, lost her parents. He took her and raised her as his own. And God eventually would use this orphaned Jewish girl, he would use her as an instrument to deliver his people, the Jewish people, from annihilation. It's ironic, isn't it? But Mordecai was the man behind the scenes when it comes to Esther. And when I was thinking about Mordecai, here's the reflection that, that comes to mind. You can affect the future by whom you pour your life into. You can affect the future so much by whom you pour your life into. It's amazing how this can work. We tend to think of ourselves as powerless to affect culture. But often the greatest change you and I will make is to simply affect someone around us for the cause of Christ. Amen? To get them on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to some of my original questions. So, if you're a worker and you're disillusioned with work, or you're a student thinking, who can I influence? You're a stay-at-home parent. You're a middle management person, an owner of a business, whatever be your case. Think on that question now in the framework of Mordecai. Maybe your influence is simply pouring into the life of somebody else. Maybe the future will be drastically affected if you'll simply see people around you and begin to pour into them. Just think of the impact you can have by just spending a couple minutes with a neighbor kid. My, I live on a corner. The neighbor kids love my driveway. It's circular. They love to turn around in that puppy all the time. Oftentimes, I'll be laying under my car working on it, and some little body will be out there standing there talking to me. Who are you? I don't even know who you are. I see little feet here, you know what I mean? Instead of being annoyed and irritated, what an opportunity just to take a moment encouraging somebody. What if you put vision into your kids as they grow up of what they could do in the Lord and what they could become? 
What if that was just a constant thing you said to your kids or your mate or a friend or a coworker? We have a lot more influence than we think, and it doesn't matter who, what our station in life is. It matters how we treat others, what we pour our life into others. Mordecai had that down. Man, did that pay dividends for the Jewish people because Esther became the hero of the story, and Mordecai is the man behind the scenes influencing her life. William Cochran, a New York politician, invested in the life of a son of a woman he had fallen in love with from England. This son came to America and went back to England, we're told, a different man. Well, his name was Winston Churchill. The son's name was Winston Churchill. Let me give you some more details about him. In 1895, Cochran, a friend of Britain's Churchill family, reputed one-time lover of Jenny Churchill, introduced her 20-year-old son, Winston Churchill, to American high society during Churchill's first trip to New York. Years later, as British Prime Minister, Churchill recalled, credited Cochran as his first political mentor and the chief role model for his own success as an orator. Wow. You think about Churchill, and you think about his influence in, in World War II and all that, right? And he turns around and says, this guy that just noticed me and put some effort into me, he was key in my life. You can affect the future by whom you pour your life into. No matter what station you find yourself in, you can do this. Evidently, Mordecai raised Esther to affect the future. We're told here she's beautiful and more than that, though, she had the ability to win the favor of those around her. So this Jewish adopted girl ends up being chosen to be the new wife of this egomaniac, narcissistic guy called Xerxes. She's now queen of Persia. Mordecai affected the future by pouring into his cousin. Have you ever noticed in a good story there's always a villain? Amen? Right? Watch a movie. There's got to be a villain. You can tell when the villain comes on the scene because the music changes. You don't even have to be watching the music. Okay, bad guy just came on. The music gets dark, right? Onto the scene now in the story of Esther comes Haman. When the story of, of, of uh, Esther is read during the Feast of Purim, I'm sure when Haman's name comes up, the listeners go, ah, bad. And, and there's some maybe hissing a little bit. Listen to Esther 3, verses 1 through 6. Talks about Haman a bit. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamathatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman was an Agagite, a descendant of Agai, former king of the Malachites. 
There's some history here between the Jews and the Amalekites. When the Jews were exiting Egypt, the Amalekites waylaid them, attacked them. So when Saul became the first king over Israel, God told them, you remember those Amalekites? Take care of them now because they waylaid you. Wipe them out. Saul was disobedient. He didn't wipe them all out. He brought back the king. King Agag lived for a while until Samuel the prophet shows up and takes care of the business that Saul ought to have done. Now, we, we read this story about Haman. We say, I thought the Amalekites were all wiped out. Where'd they come from? There's some theories. I read three of them. I don't know if any of them have that much merit, but they're interesting to talk about. Perhaps Agag, during the time he was spared, had an opportunity to father some children. That's one theory. Thus, the lineage of Haman can... That's where he came from. Other possibility that's talked about is that the Amalekites were a very nomadic clan of people. So perhaps Israel wiped out the ones they knew about, but there were some out there that they didn't get. Thus, that's where Haman came from. Or perhaps, here's the third one. I don't know if I think this one's that good or not, but I'll mention it. Agagite simply could mean those who were enemies of the Jews. So this was just a phrase used here to note that Haman was an enemy of the Jews. Whatever be the case... Here, 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 what we need to understand, there's some animosity here between Mordecai and Haman. Deep racial animosity. And Mordecai says, I am not going to bow before this dude. No, 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 no. And Haman says, you won't bow before me? I'm going to kill everybody. I mean, Mordecai did one thing that's bad, in a sense, out of animosity and disrespect, but Haman brings that thing to steroid level, amen? You won't bow to me? I'm going to kill all of you people. So now they're in a bit of trouble, amen? But here is a reflection thing to consider this morning. Let me give you the point, and then I'll give you the reflection. Haman's an example of succumbing to prejudice and bitterness. That's what he's an example of. Don't, don't some respond to the times like that? Hey, hey, listen. Even Christians respond this way. Even some are responding to times we find ourselves in with some bitterness. Why is it like this? It shouldn't be like this. And there, there's this anger of, well, it never used to be like this, and now it's like this. And, and what good does that really do? Any good at all? None at all. But I begin to reflect on Haman and how this applies to us in responding to times we find ourselves in. And I came to this conclusion. Who have you been labeling? Which people have you put into a category? Because that's what Haman and Mordecai both did. Mordecai on a lesser level than Haman. They labeled and categorized and vilified one another. People of God, remnant of God, we cannot do this. As we find ourselves marginalized more in this culture and maybe pushed out of the center and losing influence, we can't vilify and label and categorize everyone back there as evil and bad and out to get us. Amen? We cannot do that. Generations do this to one another all the time. You got the Z generation, the millennials, you got the busters, the boomers, and the one that's above the boomers, I don't know who they are. You get, and then, then we label each other and we say, well, Generation Z always acts like this and buses always act like that and boomers always act like that. No, they don't. 
There's some general rules of thumb, whatever. But no, they don't, especially when you're talking negative. They're not all that way. We've got to quit labeling and generalizing and vilifying one another. Different races do this. We vilify each other. We've got to quit doing that. We vilify the church. We label it and categorize the church. We, the, 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 the culture vilifies and labels and, and, and categorizes us. And you, or, I didn't say that right, but you know what I'm trying to say. Amen? Because you're so smart people. Just fill in the blanks. You know what? A good, good response to the time we find ourselves in is just a refusal to label. That's what I take away from Haman. Just a refusal to label and vilify and categorize. That would be a great response to the time we find ourselves in. So Haman, full of prejudice and bitterness, gets Xerxes to go along with a plan to annihilate all the Jews because they're a threat to the kingdom, he says. Xerxes didn't really understand what's going on, but he signed off on it. Now the importance of Esther's, uh, Esther's position comes to play. She's a Jew who's been placed in her position of influence for such a time as this, amen? So we get to the hero of the story, Esther. She's the hero of the story. Isn't that ironic? Because Esther starts out with Xerxes trying to put women in their place and legislate who they are. And who's the hero of the story? A woman. A woman, Amen. Yeah, I think that's really cool. So Mordecai, upon hearing that, uh, the plot uh, of Haman to annihilate the Jews, he puts on sackcloth, throws some ashes on his head, sits down and starts wailing and crying and being bitter. So Esther hears about this and says, oh, sends a servant, what's wrong, uncle? Or not uncle, cousin, I should say it, right? Cousin, what are you doing, you know? And, and, and Mordecai sent back a copy with the servant of the Edict of Annihilation, he said, you got to go to the king and beg for mercy. Problem is, is she went to the king and he didn't extend to her the gold scepter, she'd be killed. She couldn't go into the king uninvited. And some exchange takes place between Esther and Mordecai. Let me read it to you from Esther 4, verses 11 through 17. All the king's officials and the people, the royal prophets, know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them, spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's word reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your uh, father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for what? For such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink uh, for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow, she's courageous. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Esther's the hero of the story, amen? Would you agree with me on that? But here's the descriptor of her being a hero. She's humble and bold. She's humble and bold. And she understood that she was put in her position for such a time as this, and she seized the moment. And she was the instrument that God used, that he raised up to foil the plot of Haman. As the book of Esther continues to unfold, we find her going to the king and making known what Haman was up to, and the king listened to her, and Haman's plan was spoiled. Who's the hero, though? Think about her. 
She's a Jew. Strike one. She's a refugee. Strike two. She's a woman. Strike three. But what did God do? He put her into the place that he would later use as an influencer to change this narcissistic ruler's mind about this plan to kill all of the Jews. That's how God works. Station in life doesn't matter. God will use you. Amen? Amen? He will use you. Esther was teachable. She was willing to listen to Mordecai. She was humble. She was bold. She was so courageous. Do you understand how courageous she was to go to that king unannounced? She thought, I'm going to die, but I'll try. I might as well do it because we're going to all die anyway. Here's a reflection thought here from, from Esther. Are you teachable? Are you teachable? Are you willing to hear the voice of your Mordecai, whoever that be in your life? Will you seize the moment God provides for you? Let me summarize what we learned today. Okay. We face times like they faced times back then. And we are, for such a time, people, as, as Esther and gang were, for such a time, people back then. First of all, will you understand this? Will you be a steward? Will you begin to really see your life from a stewardship viewpoint? It's not about increasing and preserving control. It's about stewarding what God has given you. Will you begin to have that filter and see that way? Because if we're going to be the remnant that God has called us to be in the times that we find ourselves in, we have got to come to conviction that we own nothing, that we serve a God and we serve him well and we'll steward time and talents and treasures for the glory of the kingdom and for the glory of our God. Amen? Secondly, who does God want you to pour your life into? Stop and see those around you. Begin to pour your life into them. Begin to encourage people. Begin to understand that you may affect the future like you can't even imagine by simply stopping and seeing somebody and giving them an encouraging word. Thirdly, I really think if we're going to be people that God uses in the times we find ourselves in, we can't label and vilify. We can't categorize groups of people. We've got to quit doing that. It's just not profitable. And lastly, God wants to make you the hero of your life story. You understand that? He wants you to be bold, and he wants you to be courageous. He wants you to be humble. He wants you to be reliant upon God. He wants you to have the same kind of outlook that Esther had. I'm going to do what God wants me to do, even if I perish. God has called some to the places of power. That's Esther's. God has called some to the gates. That's Mordecai. But whatever be the station of your life, whatever be the position of your life, what matters is, that you respond to God like we talked about this morning. So I'm looking at a whole bunch of remnants here. Amen? But you're not something passing away. You're the remnant that God's going to do new work in. Amen? Amen? We are part of what God is up to. We are part of the move that God's about. We may not be in the center of culture. We may not be big influencers and power brokers anymore. But you know what? I don't think that even matters to God. Look at Esther. Jew, refugee, woman, in the margins of her culture, and God used her mightily. I pray that the Holy Spirit fills your heart. 
I pray that you begin to be one who sees the moments that God has given you and ceases those moments. That you grab a hold of them and hang on to them and you're listening to the Lord and you're thinking about what God is up to, not about why you can't do what God wants you to do. Because God uses the most unlikely people. Amen? We are the remnant. And God is up to something great in our time. And we are here for such a time as this. You are here for such a time as this. You are in your station of life for such a time as this. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Listen to those Holy Spirit promptings. Be humble, be teachable, but also be bold, be courageous. Let's pray. Like God, I thank you for this series that we went through over the last several weeks. I pray that uh, it helps us in these times to be the people you desire us to be. We look at a story like Esther in the Old Testament and we can distance ourselves from it, but these were real people going through real times, facing real trials. And we can learn so much from their examples, Lord. And so this morning, I pray that we grab a hold of one or two of these takeaways and it changes our perspective on how we do life. I pray that you would anoint the people of Grace Point with the filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus. I pray that we walk in this humble but yet bold way that we're not we're not consumed with control or preserving or increasing our own status, but what we're about is raising up the name of Jesus. And Jesus, we pray, draw all people unto yourself. May Grace Point be a place where you're lifted up and exalted, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you and we pray all these things in your blood through your name, Jesus. And all God's people said,